this everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Welcome to uh, some more of the right chemistry. We try to get it right here on the show. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, every Sunday afternoon at 3, I chat with you here in Montreal and listeners from uh, around the globe, down far south as New Zealand. And uh, we talk about uh, recent happenings in the world of science, try to clarify things for you, separate sense from nonsense and fact from fiction. I also try to tantalize your mind by offering some questions that you can uh, try to provide answers for, which will launch us into discussion of uh, some interesting uh, topic. I have a question left over from last week, which was not properly answered. If you add a little household ammonia to red cabbage juice, it turns green. What happens if you then blow into this solution through a straw? Tell me what happens then, or at 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514-800. So that's one question, and I'll give you another one. Why would you find glycerol monostyrate on the label of a jar of peanut butter? Glycerol monostyrate. Of course, it sounds like a tongue twister, and uh, people like the food babe would tell you that if you can't pronounce it, you shouldn't eat it. I'm telling you that you can't eat this. The question is, why are you eating it? Glycerol monostyrate in peanut butter. Why is it in there? Okay, let's get down to something interesting and uh, somewhat troubling. You know, there's all kinds of wonderful stuff on YouTube. I mean, you can spend your life watching excellent videos on, on YouTube. But sometimes you come up with a rather disturbing one, as I did uh, this this past week. And it's all about Uncle Fester. And Uncle Fester is wearing a red devil costume. He's got on horns, and the costume also has a tail. But this is not the Uncle Fester that you may remember from the 1960s Adams Family sitcom. It's a pretty entertaining show. In that show, Uncle Fester, oh, he would sleep on a bed of nails. He fed his plants with blood, and he could put a light bulb into his mouth and uh, turn it on. But there's another Uncle Fester who was featured in this video that I'm talking about. And he's a clandestine chemist. His real name is Steve Preisler. And he acquired that nickname during his undergraduate days as a chem major at Marquette University. Why? Because he supposedly did all kinds of crazy things in the lab. In any case, after he graduated, he put his chemical knowledge to use by converting ephedrine, which at the time was quite readily available in a number of uh, cold remedies. In fact, I mean, I've talked about ephedrine uh, uh, several times before. It's sold as ma wang because it's an ancient Chinese remedy for asthma, colds, etc., and actually can work. But in any case, uh, what uh, uh, he, Freisler, was doing in this case was using his chemical knowledge to convert uh, ephedrine to methamphetamine. So he would buy various cold remedies, extract the ephedrine, and 
converted to methamphetamine, which of course in street language is speed or, or crank. And in 1984, uh, the police caught, caught up with him and he was sentenced to five years in prison, of which he served uh, three and a half years. When he was in jail, he happened to watch a television expose of terrorist publishers. Uh, and these uh, publishers released books uh, on how to make explosives, sort of underground volumes. Anyway, this gave him an idea. He would get back at the authorities who, in his mind, had imposed an unfair jail sentence on him for making just a few grams of meth. What would he do? He would train an army of chefs in the art of cooking crank. Well, Preisler bored a typewriter and under the pseudonym Uncle Fester, cranked out his cult classic, Secrets of Methamphetamine Manufacture. What did he do in this book? Well, he gave detailed instructions on how to make crystal meth, including how you have to make the precursors from simple and at the time mostly readily available chemicals. The book, speckled with whimsical anecdotes, gave very specific instructions, and anyone with a basic background in organic chemistry was able to follow this. Of course, this caused great consternation among um, drug regulatory agencies, and uh, although Preisler called his work, quote, good, clean, chemist fun, authorities labeled him as the most dangerous man in America. Well, you know what? Fester's still at it. And I just came across him in this video that was filmed in July of this year, 2021, uh, by uh, uh, Vice Media. And uh, so you can easily find it. And it's an interview with him. And he seems to relish his infamy as a disseminator of forbidden knowledge. Uh, and that, of course, is evidenced by the devil costume that he wears. But there are several disturbing issues here. Well, the procedures as shown in the video are, are way, way too haphazard to be followed. It does repeatedly refer to his Secrets of Methamphetamine Manufacture, the book, which is now in its eighth edition. And that actually has instructions that can be followed. Anyway, the book is even available on Amazon for would-be chemists trying to follow in Fester's footsteps. But there's something else here that bothers me his reckless spilling of unmeasured amounts of chemicals, smoking while dealing with flammable substances, a lack of ventilation in his kitchen, callous use of toxic murky compounds, and disposal of chemicals in the toilet. All of this demonstrates a total disregard for safety. I mean, this is just no way to do any kind of chemistry. Never mind that he's doing, you know, some illegal manufacturing. It just, this whole thing puts a smudge on the face of, of, of chemistry that someone should be, you know, playing around with chemicals in, in, in this uh, reckless fashion. <clears throat> anyway, when asked why, quote, America's favorite clandestine chemist is not afraid that this video will trigger his arrest, Preisler claims that he has deliberately left out the last step in the synthesis ensuring that nobody will be able to make meth based on what they have seen. He also points out that murders are routinely shown on television and wonders why anyone would object to little chemistry being shown. Well, let me point out that the chemistry being shown is not innocuous, and it can lead to real misery and real deaths. 
The argument that large-scale meth manufacture today is in the hands of Mexican cartels, which is true, and authorities should not be bothered by little guys cooking up a few grams for their own occasional use, well, that's a vacuous argument. Preissler attempts to justify this by referring to the classic dictum that only the dose makes the poison. Although, interesting to me, curiously, uh, he being a chemist, he was unaware that uh, this was first voiced by Paracelsus in the video. He didn't know that. So it was made clear. In any case, evidence indicates that there is plenty of meth being synthesized in clandestine labs in the U.S. and in Canada that supply addicts, not just occasional users. Yes, it's possible that one short experience with meth, you know, once a month on a weekend is not going to kill anyone, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about addiction, which is a huge, huge problem. So this this video, uh, which is out there, uh, to me is very bothersome, first of all, because it shows people how to make an illegal substance, even though, of course, the video itself is, is not instructive enough to do that. But the book, which is, of course, referred to in the video, is indeed uh, instructive enough if you follow the, the directions. And then there's the other issue that uh, I think this depicts chemistry in just a, a terrible light. When you see someone just mixing together substances without measuring them, using the equipment in a totally inappropriate uh, uh, fashion, uh, it... Uh, it it really uh, uh, kind of presents chemistry as a dark science, whereas, of course, uh, chemistry is the science that makes possible so many of the advances in, in life, without which life would hardly be bearable. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science, you your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, one of our listeners has indeed provided me with the correct answer to the question about uh, uh, glycerol monosterate. And I asked, why would this substance be found in peanut butter? Well, if you've uh, made peanut butter at home by grinding up peanuts or, or purchased the so-called natural peanut butter or organic peanut butter in a store, you'll notice that uh, it separates. Uh, that is, uh, an oil separates out from the, the rest of the mixture. Now, of course, the mixture also contains some, some water. And what happens is that the water and oil don't mix and the oil, of course, floats to the top. The reason the glycerol monosterate is added is because it serves as an emulsifier. It prevents the separation out of the oil. And it does this because one end of this molecule anchors itself in the oil, the other end anchors itself in the moisture, in the rest of the uh, peanut butter, and therefore you get no separation. You're forming a bond between the aqueous and the um, oily phase. Now, of course, the, the question is, um, is there any issue with this additive? But once again, let me point out that when food additives are used, 
They cannot be just used in any haphazard fashion. In Canada, Health Canada has to approve any food additive very specifically in what food it can be used in, under what conditions, and in what amounts. It was no problem at all to get approval for glycerol monosterate as an emulsifier because this is a substance that is found readily in our food anyway and forms in the body. Let me give you a little bit of uh, chemical background here. In chemistry, we refer to fats as uh, three fatty acids that are linked to a backbone of glycerol molecule, so they're called triglycerides. If you can kind of picture uh, a fork, uh, which of course has three prongs, uh, this would be the glycerol part, and to each of those prongs is linked a, a fatty acid. That's your triglyceride, that's your fat. If you remove two of the fatty acids that are linked to that glycerol molecule, then you are left with a single one or a mono uh, acid linked to it. If that happens to be stearic acid, which is one of the common uh, fatty acids, then you have glycerol monosterate. Now, whenever you eat fat, you're consuming triglycerides. In the body, these are digested. Each of those fatty acids is in turn removed from the backbone of glycerol. So we're inundated with monoglycerides, di diglycerides, and triglycerides. So certainly there was no problem in getting any kind of uh, approval for uh, this particular ad additive glycerol monosterate in, in peanut butter. Uh, whether or not you're going to go for the natural or organic peanut butter or another one, the more commercial, the conventional commercial varieties, that decision you have to make based on other components. You don't want added sugar. And some of the cheaper peanut butters have sugar added to them because, of course, that will take up some bulk in the product and reduce cost and also has a flavor that many people like. But, of course, we constantly are counseling people to watch their sugar intake. So... Uh, I would suggest that in this case, you look for a peanut butter that has no sugar added uh, to it. I also have taken to eating almond butter, although with some reservation, I must say, because the growing of almonds is not an environmentally friendly business. Almonds require an awful lot of water, and they are grown in California, where there is a great water shortage. On the other hand, the fats in almond butter are sort of the beneficial fats. You get a lot of uh, omega-3 fats in there. And uh, I just, I like the taste. And, you know, often, unfortunately, we go by taste instead of uh, taking everything else into, uh, into account. So anyway, there's a story for you of glycerol monosterate. And as I always do, when a question gets answered, I'm going to replace it by another question. And this time, we're going to have a musical question. So first, we're going to play a little tune for you, and then I will ask the question. So, Jimmy, can we have it?
Okay, I think we've given people a taste of that. Uh, all right, so the name of that musical you will be required to know to answer the question. Uh, the musical takes place in 1962, and uh, there's a chemical involved in the uh, title of this uh, musical that was uh, later removed from the product referred to in this musical because of toxicity. What chemical are we talking about that was removed from the product named in the title of that musical? If you know the answer, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text us at 514-800. And obviously, those are also the ways to contact us for any question that you may have about uh, chemistry or any point that you would like to, to raise. Uh, obviously, we are increasingly concerned about the uh, Omicron variant as um, it takes a foothold and uh, it is now in many, many countries. And the question is whether or not the vaccine is protective against this uh, this variant and uh, just what the booster uh, will do. Uh, first, the, the good news. The good news is that this variant does not seem to be more dangerous in terms of um, uh, symptoms. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is that it also seems that the vaccine is not very effective against this variant. And there's even question that if we get the third booster, whether or not that is going to uh, have increased efficacy. We just don't know. This is going to take a little time until um, the mystery of this gets unraveled. But at this point, uh, it doesn't look too good. Uh, it looks like this, uh, this variant is... Uh, is going to squeeze out the Delta variant and because it seems to be very uh, infectious. Uh, luckily, not more dangerous, but unfortunately, it also seems that the booster may not be quite as effective against it. The booster is proven to be very effective against the Delta variant. I mean, we have some... Um, uh, very good information about this uh, that has uh, emerged from uh, from Israel, and uh, we saw that uh, with the uh, the booster, uh, they had very very good uh, results, and uh, they just released a study that that was published in New England Journal of of Medicine that showed that severe severe illness was lowered by a factor of about eighteen in subjects over the age of sixty and by a factor of 22 in the 40 to uh, 60 age group uh, in um, by using the third booster, the Pfizer booster. Now, unfortunately, this uh, uh, data was gathered before the Omicron variant uh, emerged. Uh, so, you know, this kind of comes with an asterisk, but uh, it was very impressive in the numbers that were uh, were prevented. So whether or not the boosters that uh, you know that that we're talking about now, the the third booster, 
is going to have a major impact uh, at this point we just don't know uh, obviously in quebec we're not going quite in the right direction uh, yesterday 2000 today what 1700 new infections all right we're going to check news and see what uh, ctv's news bureau has come up with you're listening to the dr joe show we'll be right back Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show, on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for it. I know that we have many listeners who are very adept at identifying uh, pieces of music. And so, indeed, you were able to identify the little segment that we played uh, as the opening of the musical Hairspray. However, I do not yet have a correct answer to the question. I said it was all about what substance that was in the title of the that musical, which now we know is Hairspray. So what substance in the 1960s that was found in Hairsprays which was later removed. What was that substance? And you can also tell me why it was removed. So we've gotten partly there. The musical was in the took place in the 1960s at a time when there was a substance that was used in hairspray that caused quite a commotion. Uh, it was later removed because of its toxicity. What was that substance? And uh, I answers I had was copolymer or polyvinyl pyrrolidone. No, that is an ingredient in hairspray, but that's not uh, nothing to do with uh, uh, with toxicity. All right, There's someone else said chlorofluorocarbons. No, that is incorrect either. Uh, chlorofluorocarbons were removed uh, from products much later than the uh, 1960s. All right, so we still have that question uh, hanging out there. You know what? Um, I, I these days I, I keep very up to date on what is happening in the world of coffee for several reasons. Uh, one is that, uh, as many of you know, because you have signed up for this, I, I've been producing uh, uh, virtually daily videos, very short ones, about three minutes uh, on. Uh, what uh, is happening in the world of science, some interesting stories, some controversies, commentary, etc. cetera, uh, because these days people don't have that great, uh, you know, attention span. So I make them short, about three minutes, and hopefully quite uh, pointed. And I've taken to calling these my daily cup of joe, for obvious reasons. Uh, and uh, so whenever there's something new that comes up about uh, actual cup of joe, I enjoy talking uh, about it. And uh, so now I've I've come across something that can perk us up uh, because there are constant benefits. You know, I mean, we talked uh, spoken in past about uh, Parkinson's disease and reduced risk among coffee drinkers, reduced risk of depression, etc., reduced. Uh, fatigue. I mean, all of this uh, we know. But now uh, there are two new studies that came out which are of interest. A group of Australian researchers subjected 227 seniors to a battery of cognitive tests. And some of these uh, uh, subjects also underwent brain scans. And their point there was to detect these special deposits of a protein in the brain called amyloid which are the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, 
Now, not everyone who has Alzheimer's disease has these deposits, and not everyone who has deposits eventually goes on to develop Alzheimer's disease. But there is an association. You're more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease if you have these deposits. Greater coffee consumption was associated with a lower likelihood of, of someone transitioning from just, you know, uh, cognitive impairment to full-blown, uh, you know, uh, memory uh, problems based on the amount of amyloid protein that was detected. Uh, however, uh, we have to also take into account here the, the warning that, you know, I've, I've so often given that these, uh, these kind of studies are always based on, on recall and uh, food questionnaires. And people are not that great at filling these out. You know, they're not very good in estimating amounts. And very often they will say what they think they should have eaten instead of what they actually ate or, or, or drank. Nevertheless, there was an association here between uh, reduced cognitive impairment and coffee drinking. Then there was another study, this time uh, among 350,000 people in the UK, aged 50 to 74. And they also had filled out food frequency questionnaires. Conclusion, two to three cups of coffee a day uh, mixed with two to three cups of tea associated with 32% lower risk of stroke and 28% lower risk of dementia. They did not make a distinction between regular coffee, decaf coffee, etc. Now, this they questioned them about their coffee drinking and tea drinking, and they were not able to separate out exactly who drank what. That's why, you know, this somewhat ambivalent result. But nevertheless, it looks like drinking the two to three cups of coffee, even if you don't drink tea, is going to have a, a reduced uh, risk of uh, of stroke. Interesting. Um, exactly what components of coffee are responsible for these benefits uh, is not known. And we may actually never know this. Why? Because coffee contains over a thousand compounds, over a thousand. And what is really amazing, I mean, you know, if you are followers of, of chemistry, you even more amazed by this, how many of those compounds have been isolated, identified, the molecular structure determined? And of course, many of these compounds fall into the category of polyphenols and terpenes, which which have potential physiological activity. So what, what do we take away from uh, uh, all of this? Again, of course, we're left to, you know, make educated guesses. That's really what, what we make here. There is some downside to coffee. I mean, in some people, it gives them palpitations. If you're one of those people, stay away from it. You don't want to be drinking it at night because it will uh, keep you awake. But studies are piling up showing that, you know, uh, anything up to four cups of coffee a day is more likely to be beneficial than, uh, than detrimental. What could be detrimental is if you put your sugar and cream into the coffee. So drinking black coffee is really what we should be uh, looking at. And I like looking at it, because I must say that one of the things that I really enjoy is getting into the office uh, every morning and uh, having that uh, cup of joe. Anyway, if you want to be kept up to date on all of these kind of things and, and my uh, views on science as days pass, you can send me an email and I'll put you on the mailing list. The email uh, 
Let me mention it again. It's Joe, J-O-E dot, S-C-H-W-A-R-C-Z at mcgill.ca. So blast me off an email and I will put you on the mailing list. Okay, I'm still uh, looking for the answer for the hairspray question, but I think we do have a color. So let's go to the line. Go ahead. Hello, is that for me? Yeah, it's for you. It's your your turn. Okay, Uh, my question is, it's about the vaccines. Uh, What I understand is that it has not been, the Pfizer vaccine has not been approved um, uh, in the traditional sense, like it takes about 10 years, and that there are no long-term studies on use of this vaccine, and that it was approved only for emergency use, which they consider this pandemic to be an emergency use all around the world. And um, so... um, Okay, uh, let me clarify. Let me clarify these issues because they come up quite often. Uh, It is true that at first it was approved on an emergency basis, but Mm -hmm. that is no longer true because now it has regulatory, uh, regular approval, just like any other vaccine. But it, doesn't have long, it has no long-term uh, study. Okay, uh, let, me, let me address all these issues, okay? Okay. Now, in terms of long-term effects, obviously, we cannot know anything about long-term effects until a long-term has passed, correct? So, obviously, long-term so far has not passed, so we, we can't comment on that. What I can okay. tell you is that based on the vaccines that have been so far developed, and there are over 50 vaccines that have been developed and, and, and used, we have an overwhelming amount of data and evidence that whenever any kind of side effect occurs, it occurs very shortly after a vaccine has been introduced, not years after, not even months after. It is on a much more immediate basis. So while we cannot guarantee that there are going to be no long-term effects, based on everything that we know, that is very, very unlikely. I also have to point out that uh, contrary to what many people say, this vaccine was not cranked out in an unusually short time. Uh, Research on these mRNA vaccines began with the SARS epidemic that took place about 20 years ago. So there's been a lot of research into this. It is true that it was, the vaccine was precipitated by uh, the whole COVID crisis, but it is not a technology that was introduced solely in re- response to that. This this has been developed for a long time. So, uh, look, we, we in science, we cannot make any absolute guarantees. All we do is make good educated guesses based on the data that is available at any given time. And the data that we have now is overwhelming in terms of the vaccine keeping people out of the hospital and that is what really matters. In any case, we got to take a break now and check traffic. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do I think we have Mark on the line who's got a question. Yes, uh, Dr. Joe? Yes, sir. Good afternoon. 
Uh, I have a question, yes, about what you were saying before. Years ago, a doctor told me, uh, they said, if you eat, drink coffee with unrefined brown sugar, it's a lot healthier for you. What do you, what is your comment on that? That it's less healthier for you? That, that it's healthier than, than using refined white sugar. Nonsense. Sugar is sugar. I mean, the, the difference in, in, uh, in the chemistry of, of the brown sugar and the white sugar is, is insignificant. I insignificant. See. That, that, that's nonsense. Okay. Yes. Okay, thank right. you very much. Good. Uh, also, someone was asking, if one never drinks coffee or tea, is it suggested to start to do so? I don't like either, especially without sugar in them. No, no one is suggesting that. Uh, you should not uh, consume things that you don't like. And, you know, the evidence is not overwhelming about uh, coffee. Uh, I think at this point, all we can say is that if you enjoy drinking that, you know, three or four cups of coffee a day, there's no reason to give it up. All right, we finally do have a correct answer to my question about hairspray, the chemical that was used in the 1960s as a propellant in the hairspray and was subsequently removed is vinyl chloride. Okay, obviously this requires a story. Here we go. Spray cans require the use of a substance that under ordinary conditions is a gas, but uh, which can readily be liquefied when pressurized. When the nozzle on the can is open to the atmosphere, the propellant quickly evaporates, and as it escapes from the container, it propels the active ingredients along with it. Obviously, another requirement is that the propellant not react with any of the other ingredients. Vinyl chloride met the required criteria, and in the 1950s and 60s was commonly used in various products, including insecticides and hairsprays. The substance was readily available because it was widely used to produce polyvinyl chloride, or PVC, one of the most useful plastics ever developed. PVC was used to make all sorts of consumer items, ranging from toys and shower curtains to water pipes and coverings for car seats. As early as 1938, there were reports of toxicity to vinyl chloride. That's the monomer used to make PVC. PVC, of course, is a polymer meaning that it is composed of small units joined together. In this case, the small unit, that is the, the link in the chain, is vinyl chloride. Workers in the PVC manufacturing industry reported dizziness and confusion when exposed to vinyl chloride vapors. And then in 1949, liver damage was reported in 15 of 48 workers exposed to vinyl chloride in Russia. By 1971, the type of liver damage in workers had been clearly identified, and the news was not good. Vinyl chloride caused angiosarcoma of the liver, a rare but extremely dangerous form of liver cancer. The industry began to implement measures to curb worker exposure to vinyl chloride, but there is still controversy over the time frame involved. Some industry documents show that companies were aware of the vinyl chloride risk before it became a matter of public record, and were slow in responding to the danger because limiting worker exposure could interfere with production. In 1974, however, the federal government declared angiosarcoma of the liver to be an occupational disease after six cases were diagnosed among vinyl chloride workers at the B.F. Goodrich Chemical Company plant in Louisville, Kentucky. This forced the industry to adopt stricter controls over the amount of vinyl chloride that workers could inhale. At that time, 
FDA also asked that spray cans containing vinyl chloride be withdrawn, and the era of using vinyl chloride as a propellant came to a halt. Virtually impossible to know the risks the public experienced, but it would be interesting to know the health status of hairdressers who in the 50s and 60s used hairsprays liberally. They were likely exposed to levels of vinyl chloride known to cause cancer in animals. Today, the standard allows vinyl chloride in workroom air at one part per million during an eight-hour shift, and the industry has come up with equipment that complies with this. Consumers do not have to fret, of course, about uh, uh, using any hairspray now in terms of vinyl chloride because that has long been abandoned as a, as a propellant. Uh, it was replaced by Freons, which, of course, came with their own baggage, the chlorofluorocarbons. And their baggage was that when they uh, eventually made it up to the upper atmosphere, uh, they interfered with the production of ozone, the protective layer uh, that prevents excess ultraviolet light from streaming uh, to the surface of, of the globe. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, in response to the Montreal Protocol, uh, chlorofluorocarbons were greatly restricted and were banned from uh, uh, most household products. Uh, they are still allowed in some medications and some asthma medications because there's no good replacement for them. Uh, the uh, replacement most commonly used today in all kinds of spray products is either butane uh, or propane. And uh, these uh, have their own issues because both of these are highly flammable. So you have to be very careful about using these things and uh, uh, having any kind of uh, flame uh, around. But the uh, vinyl chloride uh, uh, business is, is no longer a concern. Now, the question is, what if you're using vinyl products around the home? What if you have uh, vinyl flooring? If you have vinyl blinds? If you have uh, vinyl shower curtains? Uh, vinyl chairs, uh, of course, these are common items. Uh, is there any reason to be concerned? Well, in those products, the vinyl chloride no longer exists as the monomer. It has been linked together to make the polymer, so the same risk does, does not apply. That doesn't mean that there's no issue with these products either. Uh, because when these are put into the garbage and should they end up in an incinerator, uh, they will release hydrochloric acid, which is not good when they are burned. But much worse than that is the formation of dioxins. And uh, chlorinated compounds, when they are combusted, can form dioxins, which are uh, certainly uh, uh, an issue because they are highly, highly toxic and carcinogenic. Well, that's it. Uh, we have once again run out of time, but hopefully today you learned something about clandestine chemistry. Uh, you learned something about the dangers of vinyl chloride. You even had a chance to listen to a little bit of Hairspray, one of the great musicals of all time. We will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>